top of the inning to you. Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love baseball and if you love Ireland, stay tuned for a discussion of all things Irish baseball. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker. This week, we'll be continuing our conversation with former Notre Dame outfielder and former Oakland Athletics prospect, Steve Stanley. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the 2002 Fighting Irish baseball team that made a run to the College World Series in Omaha, Nebraska. It's also the 20th anniversary of Stanley being drafted by the Oakland A's in the second round and earning himself a mention in the influential book Moneyball. You can hear the first part of our talk in episode 36 by going to irishbaseball.org. Later in the show, we will hear from GAA President Larry McCarthy from his conversation with Sean Clancy on the show The Crack in the Bat on Irish Baseball TV. You can see the full video of that interview at irishbaseball.org. Now it's time to welcome back Steve Stanley to the Irish Baseball Podcast. Something that fascinated me about Stanley is that he was still a legitimate prospect in the athletics organization when he decided to call it quits in baseball. So, Steve, what caused you to make that decision to retire from the game and pursue other options? Well, that's a great question. I, I was a guy at that time. We had had my first daughter, and she was six months old during the 2004 season, and then during 2005, she, you know, she was a year, year and a half old. When we got to 2006, I still felt I'd had a shot because I was in double-A pretty much for those three years. And I'd had good statistics. My career batting average in double A's over 300. And I'd even had a conversation with our head of pl- our head of player development is a guy named Keith Littman. And Keith and I talked and he said, you know, Steve, you're just kind of stuck right now because you're sitting behind other guys and you've already proven that you can, you've dominated the double A level. And so now you'd have to wait, really wait your turn. And honestly, at that time in my life, being 26, with having our first daughter, it was really important to me that I was there for my family. And so as difficult a decision as that was, when you're in the minor leagues, one of the things I don't think people really understand is that when you're playing 140 games, it's very difficult to have a family. And you can do it. Guys are success- successful at it. But if I, had, if I had to do over again, I think I probably would have had my wife and my daughter come and spend more time with my, our extended family back in Columbus, Ohio, just so she had more support. Cause a lot of times being a single mom out on the road like that is pretty tough. And, um, yeah, you're gone eight, 10, 12 days at a time. And so had I known what I know now, if I'd ever had a son, one of the things I would have talked to him about too is, Hey, if you want to do this, I, you shouldn't tie yourself down because it makes it so difficult for the people that you're with, not only yourself, but for them uh, in this journey. You really have to be dedicated to your craft. And I was torn. I definitely was torn. So I made that decision. Yeah. When it came time to make that decision, were you then retroactively happy about the decision you made to go play at Notre Dame? You ended oh, yeah. up with an excellent education. You were almost financially probably taking a demotion to play professional baseball at the time. You had so many options available to you. So that decision that you ended up making at like 17 years old ended up really paying off for you. Yeah, and, and, and at 17, you really have no way of knowing that. But as I think back on that decision, I'm so thankful 
that my parents, they were as involved as they were in helping me to make that decision. And yes, you're absolutely right. One of the things that I think is so interesting about minor league baseball is that a lot of times the guys who have the most success are the ones who are the hungriest. The guys who they don't come from a Notre Dame background. They don't come from, you know, and so you, you have a guy that maybe graduated high school and goes, I don't have anything else to fall back on then. And he's hungry and he's, you know, he's determined. And so one of the reasons why they shy away from drafting guys that are from Notre Dame and Princeton and Brown and these, you know, great universities is because they, they know that that guy, if he spends a year in the minor leagues and is not having a great time at it, he's not very successful, he's probably going to hang him up. In my case, that wasn't, it definitely wasn't the reason that I left the game, but I was very thankful that, number one, I wasn't uh, more highly drafted my junior year. I wouldn't have to go back and get my degree. So I finished my degree after my senior year, and I could go directly into the workforce and support my family that way. So, yeah, you had no way of knowing it at 17, but, man, uh, the Notre Dame community and the Notre Dame family is a special group of people. And then coming out of Ohio, I would imagine that growing up you were a big Ohio State fan. I was. Like, come the beginning of the football season this year, there's a big football game coming up here. You're totally sold Notre Dame now, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not even close. (laughs) So my parents and, and many others, you know, they, they understand, but they still think I'm a traitor to some degree. <laughs> but I don't blame them because when if you've ever been in Columbus, I mean, man, this place is Ohio State through and through. These people are huge fans. One of the things I'm thankful for about the town is just how dedicated they are to their university. And so I don't blame them one bit. But no, when I, when I stepped on campus at Notre Dame, I was sold. I was won over forever. I'll always be a domer. And I'm, I'm thankful um, that not only for my four years, but, but yeah, that's an easy one. I'm sold out. You know, everyone who knows now when I watch sports, <laughs> I, I'm rooting for Notre Dame. We just had an episode recently where I talked with a guy named James Christopher, and he does a YouTube show where he goes to different minor league ballparks throughout the country. And one of them that we mentioned in that interview where we both happened to have seen a game there I was just yeah. driving across the country and it was on the side of the highway is Midland, Texas. You played for the Midland Rockhounds. That is such a unique place to see a baseball game. It's such a unique town that you're on Interstate 20 and just all of a sudden this town appears out of nowhere and then there's not another one for quite some time. What was it like playing there? A really interesting park. They had just moved couple years before I got there, they just built a new park. So the park that the, the guys had come from was not on I-20. It was kind of in the middle of the city, uh, and it was kind of off the beaten path. They built this new stadium, but all the players hated the fact that the wind blows straight in there. It blows straight in from right field. At the old park, guys would have huge homer numbers because it blew straight out the center. So if you hit a ball up in the wind, boom, it was gone. I remember balls. There was a guy who played for our team. Dan Johnson was his name. And he was uh, in the big leagues for a while with Tampa Bay and a number of other teams in Oakland. And um, one of the strongest left-handed power hitters I'd seen uh, from Nebraska. And he had so many balls 
that I would say go up into the wind. And if you can picture this, I mean, literally went up into the wind and then would come back 20 to 30 to 40 feet. And so you think the ball's out of the park and then the ball is caught by the right fielder in short right field. I mean, it's crazy. So, but what a great park. I mean, what a great place to play. Um, great town. I, I actually got to know uh, a guy named Joe O'Neill out there who is a Notre Dame alum and a big donor at Notre Dame and an oil and gas guy out there. And he was just so kind to my family, let us stay there for a while. Um, just a great community of people. Um, and, you know, it was, it was where I spent the majority of my career. So I, I really got used to that park. It was kind of a short porch in left center too. So if you hit the ball in the gap there, you could pop one out even, even as a left-handed hitter. It had kind of a monster in left center, like kind of a, a larger fence and left. And so, but I love the layout of the park and it was a great place to play great weather too. Yeah. Great, great town. So now being out of it, how do you follow baseball? Are you just into the majors? Do you keep up with Notre Dame baseball every year? I love it all. I, I watch all of it. I watch major league baseball. I'm very, very involved uh, in watching college baseball. I'm even, you know, I, I coached high school baseball a number of years um, I love the game. I'm very thankful for what it's done in my life. Yeah, and I actually followed college baseball, not only just Notre Dame baseball, but I followed Coach Maneri's career a lot as well, who was my coach. And then he went to LSU, and he just retired last year. But he made such a huge impact on my life. I followed his career. I'd watch interviews with him and watch their teams and Obviously, was very uh, excited for him when they won the national championship. I was excited for Notre Dame last year when they had as much success as they did, watching them, uh, you know, succeed and then going back to Starkville and playing in the Super Regional Mississippi State. You know, losing to the eventual national champion is nothing to uh, to sneeze at. They had a great team. And before we go, why don't you just talk about Coach Maneri and what type of impact? Of course, this is Paul Maneri, kind of. A legendary coach in college baseball has had a lot of success in the game. Why don't you talk about how he impacted your life, not just in baseball, but in making the decision to do what was best for your family and get out of the game? Was that something that was given to you from him? Yeah, he he would. I would definitely say he's been like a second father to me. Um, no question about it. Coach Maneri, he means so much to me. He was not only uh, instrumental in, in baseball decisions, but like you said, in life, I'd call him about everything. Uh, we would talk when I was playing, and then even after, since then, we've talked once a month. I just talked to him the other day. Um, he was talking to the high school coaches association group in Illinois, and he reached out and just said, hey, man, I was thinking about you, I was talking to you. And it was funny. <laughs> he mentioned that a couple of the coaches uh, that he had talked to had mentioned me, and this is when you know you're getting old. I said, which high school coaches would have coached against me? And then I realized they're guys I played against. <laughs> so they were players. <laughs> so, um, but Coach, I mean, he was a guy that, and it still is to this day, that would treat you the same on the field as off the field. You would. He's so down to earth um, that you would never know he had the success that he had uh, in the game. And that's the way he treats people. That's the way his life is. Um, that's the way he treats his family. That's the way he treats those around him. And um, he is, for me, 
the, the greatest college baseball coach there ever was. People will say it's Skip Burtman and they say it's, you know, Augie Garrido. To me, there's no question it's Coach Mary. And it, it's not just in the X's and O's and wins and losses. It's the way he's impacted so many young men. And I'm one of those. And just one last question, because I think this has also changed. I know that I saw your team back in 2002. I lived in Pennsylvania at the time. You guys played against Villanova. It was literally the field where you were playing against Villanova was next to a Little League game. The game of college baseball has changed so much in the 20 years since you guys made it to the College World Series. So sometimes you'd be playing at Mississippi State in front of this incredible environment for college baseball. And sometimes you would be in a park across the street from Veteran <laughs> Stadium playing next yeah. to a Little League game. What has that been like to see the transformation of college baseball? Like you go to Notre Dame and see that ballpark that they have there now. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Are you ever a little jealous or? <laughs> you know, that's a great question. I actually, I'm not. I, one of the things that I, I think guys miss out on today, and Coach Mayer and I have had this conversation, is that when you played, when I played against Villanova, and I, I remember those games very well, it was actually the 3,000th game of Notre Dame baseball history we played at that stadium. So we actually took a picture on the field that day. Uh, because it was a big time game for our the history of, of Notre Dame baseball. But I I don't regret that or I'm I'm, I'm I'm not jealous because we play at places like Seton Hall or Villanova or Yukon and they didn't have great facilities and yet it brought about a humility that when you did get to play in some of these bigger parks it was it was amazing. And here's the other thing is even though those parks weren't great, they had great players. They had guys who were drafted in the top five rounds in all of those teams. And so, you know, East Coast baseball was, uh, you know, it was a great thing for me to see. And yet at the same time, the facilities weren't top notch, but man, the games were great. St. John's was another place we played out there before they built this stadium. Um, and, and so, I was very thankful for that. And so today I think guys miss out on some of that because they're kind of the roll, the red carpets rolled out. And so they're expecting it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't regret that one bit. All right, Steve Stanley, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for joining us in the Irish baseball podcast. Thank you guys for having me. It's been great being here to hear the first part of my conversation with Steve Stanley. Check out episode 36 at irishbaseball.org. If you're a big Notre Dame fan, you should also check out episode 21 when I talk with Brant Ust, who also had a lot of success for the Fighting Irish before a fairly successful career in minor league baseball. I'm Rick Becker, and this is the Irish Baseball Podcast, one of the many productions of the Irish American Baseball Society. The IABS also puts on The Crack and the Bat on Irish Baseball TV, hosted by Sean Clancy. In a recent episode, Sean talked with GAA President Larry McCarthy, who took over as head of the GAA in the middle of a global pandemic. So, yeah, we went into lockdown, um, and then I took over last February. Um, I moved home on the 24th of February, and Congress took place on the 26th and 27th, and I became the 40th president of the institution. Now, there was light at the end of my tunnel. 
there's a huge amount of light in terms of COVID at the end of my tunnel. My predecessor wasn't as lucky. John Horne was not as lucky as well. And I think he did a phenomenal job leading us through, you know, the dark days of COVID because essentially what he was doing was shutting down. I have the joy of opening things up and, and the two best days we've had since I took over, I would argue, was the time. The two days we got the kids back into clubs in the north of Ireland and in the south of Ireland. And that brought some vibrancy back into, into the organisation and into the clubs. Because I came home on, on that very close to Congress, I, there was no, Congress was virtual. Um, and in fairness to the GEA, there's normally a sort of transition ceremony where John would pin the medal on my chest and I'd shake my hand and stuff like that. We couldn't do that. So they put together a very nice video where they showed John walking into Croke Park and putting the medal in a little box. And the next thing you see is one of my sons opening the box in Gaelic Park and pinning the, the medal on my chest, um, which was a very, very nice touch on, on the part of the GEA and obviously brought the two lads into the ceremony as well. But it was done virtually, obviously, and I was sitting here in Dublin. And then how do you celebrate becoming the 40th president of the, of the GEA? Well, because I was in isolation, your wife goes out and gets a fish and chips, two fish and chips and a bottle of champagne, and that's how we celebrate it. You can see the entire interview with Larry McCarthy by visiting irishbaseball.org. For Steve Stanley, Sean Clancy, and Larry McCarthy, I'm Rick Becker, and this has been episode 37 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. You've been listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org. And remember, there's no place like home.